0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 2, and let me read verses 5 to 18. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, of the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him of glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Verse 9. But we do see him who was made a little lower than who's made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through him are all things, and bringing many sons to God to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Lord, again, as we continue to worship you and come once more to your word, may our hearts and minds and souls be clean. May we confess and put aside all of uh, malice and envy and anger and lust. May we lay all that aside and be focused on you. Lord, we confess we're sinners. We need your word to cleanse us. We need your word to strengthen us. We need your spirit to work powerfully within us. And we pray that you do that this morning for your glory, Lord. Amen. Questions. Questions. My kids, and I guess this is true with all kids, love to ask questions, especially when they were small. At the house, but especially driving, whenever we would drive anywhere, they would ask a ton of questions. I I guess I did the same when I was small, but I thought, and I have already talked to my kids about this. I thought that once they had reached double digits in age, that they might ask less questions. But I think now they're asking more questions about everything. And it's... It's actually become a joy that I can share in their life and participate in this journey that they have and be able to influence them. But they love to ask questions. I'm surprised that Thomas doesn't come up and slowly – oh, it's snowing outside. That Thomas doesn't come up and slowly slip me a sheet of paper that has a question on it because we'll be – almost every hymn, we'll be singing. And if you notice at times, Thomas is talking to me, and sometimes my first reaction is what? Be quiet. We're worshiping God. But he may be asking a question about a certain word that he doesn't even know what that word means. <laughs> so he's asking, what does this word mean? What does this symbol mean? What, what is the theology? What is this saying about, about God? And so I'm, I'm growing and my, by God's grace, I hope, I'm growing in my understanding that questions are not always bad. The children asking questions can be very good. And in one sense, not in every sense, but in one sense, we should be like children asking questions, especially with scripture and especially with a sermon that we when we're reading, when we're reading a scripture, or a passage, we should have what? Questions. What does this mean? How can that be answered? And then how can I apply it? Even with a sermon, I'm sure with every sermon, there are probably questions that you have. And it's good to ask those questions and to get them answered, and if appropriate, for there to be application from those answers. And so this morning, what I want to do is to ask three questions, to consider them, to answer them, and then to apply them about the text that we've just gone over. And we can't always do this with every sermon. It would take us forever and forever to get through any book of the Bible. But especially with the book of Hebrews, there can be many questions. There are some things in the book of Hebrews that can be difficult to understand here and there. So this morning, we're just going to take a break. And I'm going to ask questions that have been brought up to me and answer them. And then in a certain way, seek to apply them. Okay. Number one. This is the first question. And again, questions most of the time, or I should say, questions can be good when we're asking, Lord, how do I understand this? And so there were, were some questions. And the first question is this, and some of you caught this, and that is this. Why does, if you look at the text, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, why does Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7 say angels? And it's quoting Psalm 8 and 5, and Psalm 8 and 5 doesn't say angels. Instead, it says what? God. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, 6 through 7, the Spirit of God through the human author is using this to talk about that Jesus is fully human. And he's backing that up with God's consideration of man and man's state and man being made in the image of God. And he uses Psalm 8. But in verse 7, in the book of Hebrews, it says angelos, that's the word in Greek for angel. Sounds very similar, right? But if you were to turn to Psalm 8.5, Psalm 8.5, it doesn't use the word in Hebrew for angel Psalm eight five says, "Yet yeah, you have made him a little lower than God," and it uses the word Elohim. So, what's going on? Did the Spirit of God make a mistake? Did the Spirit of God misquote Psalm eight five? I can misquote Scripture; <laughs> I-, I can get words and phrases wrong, but the Spirit of God can't. So, is this a mistranslation, or is it in there? I could what's what's going on. That should be a question it should be wait I'm not understanding this if we know our Bibles at times we might have more questions so what's going on so I want to explain what's going on and then I think there's a legitimate appropriate application so I'm going to give many points of how we can understand this okay again psalm two seven says angels and it uses the Greek word for angels it's quoting a passage in Psalm 8 5, which doesn't say angels, it says Elohim, God. Is it a mistake? Is it a mistranslation? So let's seek to understand this. First of all, the term in Hebrew is Elohim, but the word Elohim in Hebrew and in the Hebrew Bible, it can mean God with a capital G. It can mean God's plural with a small g. It can mean heavenly beings, divine things, or it can mean also angels. It can mean angels, depending upon the context. Even in my numeric and standard Bible, in the margin on verse 5, it says that the translation could be angels in the margin of my. Numeric and standard Bible. Number two, a second thing to understand. Every Bible translation that I looked at for Hebrews 2.7 uses the term angels, but not every Bible I used or looked at used the term God and Psalm 8.5. Every Bible I looked at, every version I looked at, every translation I looked at, and Hebrews 2 7 had angels. But not every version, not every translation of the Bible I looked at and Psalm 8 5 use the term God. Uh, The King James Version uses angels. The New English translation, which is a pretty good translation by a Greek scholar and some other Greek scholars, uses the phrase heavenly beings. And there's a pretty good translation that I like, I like and at time used called Lexham. It's also it's written by Greek discourse and Hebrew discourse scholars. They also use the phrase heavenly beings. What I'm saying is that there are some Bible translations that recognize that the term Elohim has many ways it can be used, and the context determines whether it should be God, gods, angels, heavenly beings. Uh, For example, the word Elohim, that ending, the im in Hebrew, that's plural. It's plural. So in our English Bibles, oftentimes Elohim is used and it's translated God. That is correct. But it's using a plural ending, referring to the the majesty of God. I'm, I'm just simply pointing out that there was room within the word Elohim, depending upon context, to be used for either God, gods, or angels. And some translations say maybe it's better in Psalm eight to go with angels rather than God. So then it would it would read. You have made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him of glory and majesty. Another point, and this is number three. Many commentaries just barely address this or acknowledge this. Some just pass over it. Some just talk about it very briefly. Uh, Henry Alford, an old commentator that I think he does a great job, says it's accurate enough but not exhaustive. That is. Hebrews 2.7 is being accurate with saying angels. It is. It's just not saying every single way that word can be used. John Owen that wrote a seven-volume commentary. He was a Puritan. He wrote a seven-volume commentary in a Hebrews. It is exhaustive and it is very good, but it is laborious to read. But it is very good. He translates Psalm eight five, as also angels. Now, I've already somewhat mentioned this, but let me mention it again, and this will be, if you're taking notes, number four. Every word has a semantic domain, a, a domain, a, a region of ways the word can be used. And on one way it can be used for God, it can be used, and think of a big circle. And in the circle, you have God, you have gods, you have angels, you have heavenly beings, and you have this pool of words to choose from if you're translating the Bible, because the word can be used depending upon context and these different usages. That is what I'm saying is in Hebrews 2.7, the word angel is used in the Greek. That corresponds to the semantic domain, the pool of meanings of usages that can be used. In other words, Hebrews 2.7 is not a mistranslation at all. Even if you keep the word God in Psalm 8.5, angels is still within that semantic domain. Number five, if you're taking notes, the LXX, that is the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament on this verse uses angels what they call the, the Targums, the other translations, uh, ancient translations of the Old Testament and, and Aramaic and other languages use the terms for angels in Psalm 8.5. Again, if you look in your margin, at least on my margin of my numeric and standard, it says, or you can translate it, angels. If you're taking notes, then I think this is number six. The New Testament is inspired, and it uses the word angels, so it's accurate. (laughs) All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, training, instruction, and righteousness. And so it's the word that God wanted to use was the word angels. And angels means either a human messenger or a divine messenger. A celestial being, an angel. And so that gives us the translation, I think, for how we should look at Psalm 8 5. Just a, a couple more ideas. And even looking at Psalm 8 5 and Hebrews 2 7, but, but more theologically. And sometimes when you do translations, sometimes there can be, the, sometimes what's taught is you, you can't use theology in translation. But that's a misnomer. Theology is <clears throat> is used in everything we do, even in translation. Theology is used all the time. We just have to be careful that we're not assuming things that this word or this passage is not saying. So we've looked at some of the data. I've given you some of the linguistic data, but now theologically, looking at Psalm, I'm sorry, Hebrews two seven, <clears throat> did, did Jesus? Looking at all of Scripture, too, theologically, did, did, did Jesus, when he incarnated himself, that he incarnate himself just a little bit lower than God? Is that how he did his incarnation? That you have, in terms of mortality, maybe, and, and present glory, you have God and you have angels. And so Jesus incarnated himself a little bit, just a little bit lower than God, but, but above angels? I think when we read Scripture, we won't take the time to do it, but you can read Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Christ incarnated himself, the Son of God incarnated himself as a, a weak, mortal human. And we've seen that in, in many Scriptures. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but Romans 8.3, just to remind you from last week, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. It says, for what the law cannot do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness. He wasn't sinful and never sinned ever, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did something which an angel did not do. And that is come, he took on real, as Hebrews 2, 7 as Hebrews 2 following says, took on real flesh and blood that was weak and finite and that could, could die. Christ took on a humanness that was not just a little bit, little bit lower than God, but a lot lower than God. And so I think understanding Hebrews 2.7 and Psalm 8.5 Certainly Hebrews two seven, but even Psalm eight five, to be referring to angels, helps us to understand that Christ really, out of His grace and love, even as it says in Hebrews two nine, by grace, out of His love and power and humility, was in a sense more, more human than you and I are. But He really died. That's why it says He tasted death. He experienced. A a mortality, a type of that an angel could not do because Jesus is better than angels. So that's why I would say probably Psalm 8, 5, God made us a little bit lower. Though we're made in image of God, we're so immortal. For And for right now, we're made a little bit lower than the angels. The word God there is not heretical. <laughs> I'm not saying that's bad. But in light of Hebrews 2, 7, definitely saying angels and all that I just said, Probably better to understand Psalm 8-5 as angels. Now, how do we apply this? Do do we make up an application? Well, I, I want to say two things. Thank the Lord that we have different versions of the Bible. Thank the Lord that we have different versions of the Bible. Thank the Lord that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Many different ways of manuscripts. Okay, even have if – I've lost a count, but like 5,600 manuscripts just of certain New Testament books of the Bible. But then you have books uh, that were read to churches where they took books of the Bible and put them in this book, and, and they would read those to the churches. And we have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of those. What I'm saying is that there are some religions that have their religious book, and this is what it says. And you you don't have the authority, the power, the clout to ever look at the all the other manuscripts. And, and there aren't any other manuscripts because they were all burned. Usually, it is like the Latin Vulgate was for hundreds, if not a thousand years. This is the version of the Bible. And since you don't know Latin, you can't read it, so you're going to have to trust us. But who knows what it really says? And so we are a blessed people that we have the Bible, we have it in different versions. That is, you have men that have said, I'm not sure I would translate it that way. I think I would translate it a little bit different. I would use... This translation, this phrase, this clause, that's not bad. That's wonderful, I think. And so we should praise God and thank God for that. Not everybody has had that. <laughs> so praise God that we can say, I'm not sure I understand this. Let me look at five different other versions of the Bible. and just a matter of seconds, right, I can have about 30 versions of the Bible. That's never, ever happened before until the times that we live in. That's incredible. Praise God. And then second, we can't lose context of what we're looking at, and that's why I ended the way I did with just giving some data, and that is that Jesus didn't incarnate himself just a T-bit lower than – than God the Father, than his original state of glory. He didn't stop being God. He didn't lay aside his deity, but he added a mortal flesh and blood, weak humanity to himself. And so, yes, we need to have this super mega view of Jesus as God that we see in Hebrews chapter 1, but we also need to have a super mega appropriate biblical View of Christ and his humanity. He was fully God, but he was fully and is fully human. That's incredible. And that's what a lot of Hebrews is built upon. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also like you. Jesus is like you. He's fully human. Even now, though glorified human. Jesus went lower than any angel could ever go. Praise God. We don't worship an angel or follow an angel, but the Messiah, the Lord, Yahweh, that took on flesh and blood for you and for me. Because of that, and because he tasted death for everyone, then 2.18 says he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because of the choice that God the Son made to become a human, to live a perfect life to be betrayed, to, to die on the cross for sinners to rise again. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so we praise him for that. So that's the first question. Second question is this, and maybe this is more of a question and answer for me than for you. How do we see Jesus? Because it says in Hebrews 2.9 nine. And remember, if you can remember, the, the Greek text in Hebrews 2 and 9 doesn't say, but we do see him. It says, but the one that was made a little lower than the angels, that one, we see Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, and I, I tried to explain it some last week, but... Does that mean we see Jesus in a a dream? Does that mean we see Jesus in a vision? But we see Jesus, does that mean that I think of a a face in my head? Does that mean that I I look at the supposed shroud of Jesus, right, that you've seen on TV? And I look at that shroud and I I look at the outline on, on the shroud and I put that image in my head. Does it mean that I look at the Jesus that has blonde hair? Have I seen the Jesus that has blonde hair and that has a halo? Is that the image I should have of Jesus? Should it be the Jesus that people wear on the cross and they wear it around their neck? Is that the Jesus that, that I see? Should it be an actor, whether it's the movie? I forgot the name of the movie. I never saw it, but the movie of the actor and it was all about his crucifixion the the new series of Christ and his apostles do i Do I put those actors' faces in my head that's what jesus is I'm not saying that they're bad or are they're wrong, but how exactly are we to picture Jesus because it says here that we see Jesus. Have you ever had, and I think I mentioned this last week, have you ever had somebody come to you and tell you that they've seen Jesus? I've had many people, and I've read many, many accounts. There was a man named Arthur Blessed. Are any of you familiar with Arthur Blessed? Yes. And so he would go from village to village to village to village, for example, in South America, carrying a big cross on his shoulders, and then he would hand out Smile, Jesus loves you stickers to everybody. They were orange. And at least one time he saw Jesus. At least one time. And it was a time in my life where I thought if I was really godly, if I was really spiritual, I would see Jesus. I still haven't seen Jesus yet. And I would say 100% pretty sure that you won't see Jesus until either he returns or you die. One of the two. I could, you know, I, I'm pretty sure. Because I think that's what scripture says. First Peter chapter one, verse eight says that we don't see him now. We don't see him yet. We have faith in him. Well, then what does this mean? But we see Jesus. I, I think that's a lovely little clause right there. But we see Jesus. Well, let's understand this. And again, remember that as the book of Hebrew starts, it says, we see Jesus. And then when the book of Hebrew begins to wind down and close in chapter 12, verse 3, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And verse 3 of chapter 12 says, for consider him. So at the beginning and through the book and at the end, basically it's saying, we look and look at Jesus. But what does that mean? Because I'm supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, we don't yet see Jesus, but yet we're supposed to look at Jesus. What does that mean? You have so many verses, right? Colossians chapter 3 says, fix your mind on the things above. What does that mean? What am I supposed to be doing? What does it mean that I'm looking at Jesus? So just a couple of things to think about. First, this involves what every believer, in a sense should be doing, and and to some degree does. If you look at verse 9, it's not a an imperative. It's saying this is something that we do. This is something we see. There is a perception that we have about Jesus. And it talks about it. Suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. And in context, this incarnation into humanity that was a little bit lower than angels. Though our knowledge of him can, can grow, every believer, no matter how old or young, how m- mature or immature, should have this basic knowledge that Jesus is God and that he's what? Human. That's at least what this is saying. But we do see him. How? Verse nine: lower than the angels, but yet in context, you are the same. Chapter one, verse twelve: your years will not come to an end. The eternal, powerful, creating God—that's <coughs> Jesus, and that's a way that the the normal Christian should have this understanding, understanding, this perception, this view. This knowledge of who Christ is. He's fully God and he's fully man. Even with Jehovah's Witnesses, our Mormons, our cults, Hebrews chapter one is, is, in two is very clear. He's not an angel. He's God. But in fact, he became low with an angel for a time so he could be our savior and our messiah and our great high priest. Would you please trust him? You know, it's a great way to Share with the cults, but we have this this knowledge, this view of Christ, fully God, fully man. Second, just thinking about this, and again, maybe it's more of a reflection on me, this knowledge that we can have, this relationship, this view that we can have that he's fully God and fully man. for me, right, verse 18, chapter 2, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Have you ever been tempted? Yes. Then he—he's for you. His humanity is for you. He's—you're a great high priest for you, and he's fully God for you. That is, every believer can experience this. There can be, and Christianity and Christendom, this attitude that not maybe in Reformed churches or even evangelical churches, but and some evangelical, maybe more charismatic churches, there can be this idea that if you are really, really spiritual, then you're going to see Jesus in a dream. Or maybe he, he will appear to you himself and, and guide you. But this verse is saying that every believer here sees Jesus. Maybe sometimes, or maybe they have, maybe in the future, somebody will come to you. Maybe a a, a truly uh, charismatic brother or sister, charismatic in their view of Christianity. And maybe they'll ask you, have you ever seen Jesus? I have. What would you say? You can say, I see Jesus not just on certain visions. I see Jesus all the time. I see Jesus 24-7. And then you can talk about the Book of Hebrews. Here's how I see Jesus. In other words, this is not saying that we should live for this, like heightened mountaintop experience. If I'm really, really spiritual, then I can have this encounter with Jesus where I, I see Him almost like the amount of transfiguration. Well, the amount of transfiguration is it's certainly wonderful, but. The Mount of Transfiguration didn't really help Peter that much because even after Peter saw all the glory of Christ, the Mount of Transfiguration, it wasn't too long after that, what did Peter do? Peter saw Jesus and walked with Jesus. All the disciples did. And then what happened? They all what? Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. And they ran away out of fear. So it's not having some kind of incredible, supernatural, mystical vision with Jesus that will give you the godliness and the spirituality that you need in order to have the courage to live for him. But rather, it's that day-to-day seeing Jesus and in the context, seeing Jesus and his word that gives you the courage and the faith to be brave for Christ. Perhaps this is why we have Colossians 3.16, but let the word of Christ draw within you richly. Read the whole Bible, but especially those parts that are about Jesus, read those and think through those and pray about those and seek to apply those sections especially to your life. Now, the question to to ask, and I ask myself this, and I've asked it before, is how do I view Jesus now? I've been a Christian for 40, no, I've forgotten how old I am. I've been a Christian for about 40 years, like 40-something years, 47 years maybe. That's a long time to be a Christian, something like that. Is Jesus sweeter to me and more serious to me today than when I first came to Christ. If not, something is wrong with me. Is Jesus more awesome to me? Do I see him more as savior and king and more powerful to save and sanctify me? Is he more sweeter than sin to me this day in December than last year on this day. If I see Jesus and I see him in his beauty and his glory, how special he is, how magnificent he is and wonderful, how soul satisfying and sin crushing he is. Then shouldn't he be more desirable to me today than last year? If not, the fault is not with him, it's with with me. And I think in a sense, that's what the book of Hebrews is going to do. Jesus is more awesome than angels. He is more awesome than any human leader. More awesome than Joshua. More awesome than, than Moses. And he's going to go through different areas and sections like that, saying Jesus is the best. He's the best. He's the best. He's the best. He's the best. Do I see Jesus not only as better, but as the very best thing in the universe. but we see Jesus. There's a a third question, and this third question is perhaps a question that causes a lot of issues and a lot of problems, and in one sense it shouldn't, but in a different sense it does, because I think it's in one sense so foundational, but in in another sense so so perfect. And the third question is, what does... Hebrews 2.9 mean when it says he might taste death for everyone. Right? This is the idea of limited atonement, particular redemption, definite atonement. What does this really mean? What, what do those words mean? Because it says in verse 9 that he might taste death for everyone. And then even later. It says in verse 17, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. That means to appease the wrath of God. So in context of of this passage, what does taste death for everyone mean? So we're going to seek to understand this exegetically, theologically, and pastorally. When we do it theologically, it will be theology and a little bit of history. But first, let's – and again, guys, this is a subject that has caused a lot of controversy. You know, tulip, it's the L and tulip. And I've had people come to me, do you believe in particular redemption? If you do, then that's that's evil. That's wrong. Even some people in the last 10 years. I've had other people do the opposite. If you don't believe in particular redemption, then you're really bad. And when I was growing up, I never had any idea about particular redemption, death and atonement. I had no idea about those words. Was I saved? Can you be saved and not understand those words? So we want to be careful. We want to be kind. We do want to be accurate, mainly we want to understand what this means, that he might taste, that he might experience death for everyone. There's a certain sense in which this is a, a verse that should drive missionaries, right? I can go to India. I can go to, to bore to India, and preach the gospel because he might taste death for everyone. That gives me hope. But let's seek to understand this. and We can't talk about everything. We're just going to talk a little, a little bit about it because even the rest of this chapter, verses 10 through 18, are going to elaborate and explain even more what the you might taste death for everyone means. But I thought it would be helpful just to examine this a, a little bit more. So first, exegetically. Oh, wait. Before I do that, you know, this can be... I won't say boring, but maybe it's a little bit complicated. So, does everybody want some coffee? Why are you laughing? Does everybody want some coffee? Nobody is saying yes, because you know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, when I say it, does everybody want coffee? My, my blessed neighbor, I've talked to you about our neighbors that they have, le- they leave us food. Well, One Friday night, We went to Main Stage Theater to watch a play, and he texted me during the play. And he said, Tom, I left a copy of Donald Gunther, a commentary on the book of Hebrews, on your doorstep. This guy's giving me food and giving me books. And he catched my hair. He's a believer. But just now, when I said, does everybody want coffee? Jose didn't run in and say, Tom, I want coffee. I want some coffee. I wasn't talking to him. And I love Jose, but when I said, does everybody want coffee, I was excluding Jose. I wasn't talking about him. We can see the word everyone, and if we're not careful, we can take that out of context and think everyone means everyone in the whole universe that has ever existed. But that's not what, in context, that's not how I was using everyone. If I say, does everyone want coffee? Does Governor Inslee come in? and say, Tom, I know you've sent me some emails and some texts, and you've disagreed with me, but since you've asked me for coffee, I'll take some. I I love Governor Anseline. He's made an image of God. But with appropriate respect, I wasn't asking him if he wanted coffee. I was asking who? You, a certain group. There was its idea, does everyone in this room... Want coffee. And even when I say that, I'm sorry. It's Megan. Emily, I I apologize, honey. I'm not asking you for coffee. I'm not asking if you want coffee. You have to ask your mommy. Even when I'm talking to you that's sitting in front of me and I say everyone, I'm not including even everybody in this room. There was a time when I was in seminary and I loved my Greek professor and he was a linguist and I think he was a really good professor. But we were talking about the word all in the New Testament. He said all always means all, always means all because we had a question. Does does all always mean everybody without exception or can all mean something else? And he said all always means all. So one student said in the class, "I, I have a question. Do all seminary students have to take expository preaching? And he said, yes, of course. Then he said, what about the students at Fuller Theological Seminary? Do they have to take expository preaching? And he said, no. But you just said all students have to take expository preaching. No, all the students that are at Master's Seminary have to take expository preaching. Do you, Am I being clear? So context determines what every or all, every is... Single, it's individualizing all is more corporate. Both those terms, by context, their meaning will mean everybody without exception are a distinct group of people. So then, if we just look at some of the terms that flow after verse nine, look at some of these terms that are are used describing the people that are being written to. So verse 9 says, he might might taste death for everyone, and then in describing them, he calls them in verse 10, sons, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the art of their salvation through sufferings. There's a specific group of people that are talked about with this word everyone, and that is they're going to be brought to glory, and they're called sons. They're, They're related to their father. Even in verse 11, he calls them brethren. In verse 12, he calls them brethren. In verse 13, he calls them children, and children that God has given him. They belong to him. They're given to him. Even as we go further down in this section, maybe you can find even more here. Verse 17, even more terms that are referring to a specific group of this everyone. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren. And even to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A specific group. So it, it seems clear that that these terms here are talking about This group of specific believers that have assembled together, every one of them. There's a unique and specific way that Christ has tasted death for. Now, there's more that we can say with the exegesis, with the nuts and bolts of the Greek here, but we're losing time, so if you have more questions, you can ask me afterwards afterwards about the exegesis, about the nuts and bolts, the language of verse 9. But let's move on to the, the theology of it, the theology of it. Basically, I this is one of the ways that I think about it. If we were to go to Anderson Island and we're on, let's say we rent the ferry, and we're all on the ferry, and for some reason, maybe there's a hurricane that blows in right down the sound, Have you ever been on the Great Lakes? The Great Lakes, you can have huge, huge waves. I've been on there when there's been huge, huge waves. Let's say we're on the Sound, and there's 20-foot waves. The boat capsizes, and most of you fall in. Most of you fall in, including uh, my—I love you guys. But let's say my wife and kids fall in. Who do I choose to save first? I, I love you guys. You guys are awesome. But who am I going to save first if also my wife and kids fall in? I love you guys so much. I love my wife and kids more. I'm going to save them more. I'm going to save them first. It doesn't mean I don't love you. I do have a sincere love for you, but I love them more. The only problem is I'm not as good a savior as as Jesus. And so I would probably drown in the process even of trying to save them more. But there is a Savior who decides to love certain individuals, not because of anything within themselves, but because of his own grace and mercy. And when he loves, and when he even gives his life for those that he loves, it is 100% effectual. So in a basic nutshell, that is limited atonement, definite atonement. I prefer effectual atonement. And I, I guess I stole the term. I was looking at different books this week. Uh, R.C. Sproul says he doesn't prefer limited atonement because the connotations, maybe the, the, the way that people react to that. And then I found some old guys that talked about effectual atonement. I, I thought I came up with the term, with the phrase, but I must have heard it before and then got it from them. So theologically, that's what we're talking about. An effectual atonement where God has such a great, enormous love like a husband for his bride that he gives his wife. And he's so powerful. He's so strong. He's so awesome. He's so accomplished and never fails in all that he does and and will do that he says, I'm going to save. Then he saves. Now. Heaven said that. This is the main issue, and I'm trying to be brief and to boil it down. There's, again, there's more to this, but three basic Christian, ah, somewhat Christian views of the atonement. The first one is that Jesus is so powerful. His death was so awesome that when he died, everybody is saved. Could the cross of Christ, is it sufficient to save everybody? Yes. So one view is that it actually does. And so that's universalism, a a type of Christian – I'm saying that with small letters – a type of Christian universalism. And nobody here would would believe that. It's the idea that everybody goes to heaven because Jesus died for everybody. The the next view is we would say Arminian, evangelical Arminian. And that is – and it has to do – I should say it has to do with design. Did God design the atonement to save everybody without exception so that when Christ died everybody is saved? Like one of my friends that I loved, he told me about a month ago, everybody is saved, Tom, everybody is going to go to heaven. Cuz Christ died for them. Well, that's not true. You know, Matthew 7 and many other places, the the road is wide that leads to destruction and to hell. Many most people are going to hell. Sadly, Now, so one view is that God designed the atonement to save everybody. Everybody will be saved. No, that's not biblical. The second view is that God designed the atonement to save everybody, but only those people that have faith will be saved. This is the second view. God designed the atonement to save everybody, but not everybody will be saved, but only those that have faith. Now, there's something about that view that is correct. Only that... Only those that have faith will be saved. True. But God never fails. If God designed the atonement to save everybody, but only a few are saved, then God failed. But God doesn't fail. So that's not the best way or the most biblically robust way to describe the atonement of Christ the best way to describe it is to say that God designed the atonement to save his elect and he effectually applies the atonement to them. God designed the atonement to save the elect and he effectually applies the atonement to them. Yes, through their faith. But Remember, their faith is because God elected them and regenerated them. Otherwise, they couldn't have faith because we were all what? We were all spiritually dead. So he elects us. He regenerates us. He grants us faith. So we are his people. So using the word limited has some connotations, which even, you know, for me too, kind of, I don't necessarily like, but the atonement is limited. Not in terms of its power or capability, but because of election. God doesn't elect everybody to be saved because of regeneration, because of faith. And it's limited because people without Christ, without the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, people without Christ, you and I without Christ, would never choose the cross, ever. We would never choose Jesus. So salvation is holy and totally of God. And that's why it says in Hebrews 2.17 to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And this is just by the way, these words like propitiation, redemption, redeem, they mean what they say. It means that Christ actually did propitiate, appease the anger of God for these individuals so they're no longer under God's full just fury. Redeem means they were bought back with a price. Christ paid the price for them, so they would not go to hell. Otherwise, Christ paid for them. His death may not be that valuable because they went to hell anyways. Now, trying to move somewhat rapidly and praying this well bring some clarity, but there is an issue we have to talk about, and that is here. here's the problem, I, I think, and some others think, is the issue is mainly what did God design to do? Did he design to save some, or did he design with the atonement to save everybody? Well, if he designed to save every single person, that's not going to happen. Even the Bible says that, so he failed. But the issue is the atonement, there's not just one design of God. There's not just one purpose of God. There are several designs of God, and there are several purposes of God with the death and atonement. Many. Now, I'm not the only one to say this. Uh, for example, are you familiar with Charles Hodge? So, Charles Hodge is a great Presbyterian theologian, uh, be- way before the Civil War, and wrote three huge volumes of theology says this, quote, There is a sense, therefore, in which he died for all, and there is a sense in which he died for the elect only. Now, this is Charles Hodge. R.B. Oh, and Charles Hodge helped to start, I think, and did teach at Westminster, or forgot what it was before then. Uh, Princeton, and then, think, Westminster. R.B. Kuyper, president of Calvin College and Seminary, Also taught at Westminster Theological Seminary, said this, quote, the particular design of the atonement and its universal design in no way contradict each other. They support and strengthen each other. It's a professor from Calvin Seminary. And then John Murray, they wrote one of the best books ever, I think, called Redemption, uh, Accomplished and Applied. Everybody should read it. Wrote a great, one of the best commentaries on Romans. He's reformed. Says, quote, the unbelieving and reprobate in this world enjoy numerous benefits that flow from the fact that Christ died and rose again. The enjoyment of certain benefits, even by the non-elect and reprobate, falls within the design of the death of Christ. So I hope that clears up some things and not causes confusion, and that is in terms of atoning for sin, in terms of propitiating, satisfying the anger of God's wrath, in terms of covering and cancelling out the guilt of a person's sin. That's for those that are his. That's for those that express faith because God chose them. But because Christ's death is so magnificent, so sufficient and efficient, that there are overflows of that. Perhaps that's why you have First Timothy 4:10, which says that Christ is the savior of the whole world, but especially of believers. I think this is why you have even Matthew 5, 43 and 48, where it says, love your enemies, and it gives the example of Christ, loving God-loving unbelievers. He gives them rain and food. And that's even why when I started this question, I talked about how I do love you guys. I love all of you. I do. But I have greater love for my family, for my wife, and for my kids. And the same with you, with everybody else that there is a particular love of God, like a husband for his bride. There's also a particular way that a husband would die for his wife, that he may not die for the rest. And that's what we have in the Bible concerning the atonement. So when we see Hebrews 2 9 that he might taste death for everyone that verse and this context to everyone seems to be it's more of this idea that here you would have like for example of ours here it doesn't matter who you are in this room it doesn't matter your background it doesn't matter what sin you've committed it doesn't matter if you were genghis khan if you bow the knee and and ask Jesus to forgive you and to save you, there is room at the cross for you. You can be saved. Your sin can be atoned for. That is, there is no one that says, Jesus, please save me. I'm a sinner. Lord, I I confess I'm lost. Please save me, Lord. I deserve hell. Will you have mercy on me, Lord? I repent, and and I trust you. It's not the sense which God says, well, the atonement is limited. That's not what this means. Rather, it's the idea that God does not fail in redeeming and atoning for somebody's sin. And if the sinner cries out, Lord, save me, regenerate me, Lord. I, I, I want to belong to you. Take care of my sin, Lord. I, I receive you. You're one of his people. He'll save you. He won't turn his back on you. And I think that's the idea in Hebrews 2.9. Remember that these people were being tempted to do what? to draw away from Christ, maybe because of baggage they had even in their life. And so the Spirit of God is saying, hang on to Jesus, come to Jesus, he'll save you. The atonement is efficient, but you have to belong to him. Exercise faith and trust and repentance in him. In other words, I, I think that this doctrine is really wonderful and it should be comforting. It is effectual atonement. That is when God says, I want to atone for your sin and Christ died on a sin, died on the cross for you and rose again. He actually does save you. His design wasn't just to make you savorable, but to actually save individuals. And that is wonderful. Now. Uh, briefly and quickly, pastorally, how, how do we uh, apply this? J- just two things. Number one. Live free. Your guilt is completely washed away and you are cleansed and your guilt is covered. We have said you can't change your past, but the guilt of your past, the sin of your past can be covered. It can be with God canceled out. It can be forgiven. Don't live in your guilt. Come to Christ. Come to the cross. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. What I did was wrong. It was a a crime against you. Lord, please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Don't live in the guilt of your sin. If you're a believer, daily come to the cross. And sometimes we can have a misplaced shame or a, a false guilt when you're a Christian and you begin to be convicted by the Spirit of God for sins that you've done in the past. Harness that guilt. Satan will want to take that guilt that you have, believer, and not just make you feel convicted. But he'll want to crush you down with the guilt. He'll want to just flatten you out in in the dust. In Psalm 19, Psalm 119, the writer, he talks about how he's cleaving to the dust because of his sin. And that's where Satan wants to leave us. The way to get out of that is, I'm, I'm so thankful I feel guilty. Have you ever said that? God, I thank you I feel guilty and then go to the cross. Satan wants you to get smashed with the guilt. God, with that guilt, he's sovereign. He wants you to take that and use that to go to the cross to get cleansed. Every time you feel guilty, go to the cross. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. The blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse everybody. It cleanses those that come to him by the grace of God. Live free, free from guilt, by dealing with your guilt. Number two, glory in the cross because it takes you to glory. You can see that in verse 10, and bring in many sons to to glory. Christ died on a cross in order that your sin, my sin could be paid for, could be coveted, the wrath of God could be satisfied. He rose again. Chapter 1, verse 3 says he sits at the right hand of God on high, but he did that to make you not just forgiven, but to make you an heir of Christ, that you can reign with him and that you can be glorious. It says in verse 10, and bringing many sons to glory. Not, not just the ideas is to heaven, but even to a glorious place. And this is again why Revelation, I think 22 verse 5 says, and we will reign with him forever and forever. That is tremendous. That's why we should sing hallelujah. That is, we should be the most rejoicing and a true sense happiest group in the whole universe where we should be. I don't mean with a false joy, but with a true joy in our heart. Hallelujah. Praise God. Glory to God. It's not just I'm going to glory. I am going to glory and I'm going to be glorious. That's what first Corinthians 15 says. And that's what ultimately the atonement does. Glory in the cross because it takes you to glory. Which is more sure. Believers, those that have trusted Jesus in this room, for all of you that have trusted Jesus, which is more sure, that you're going to make it and live, be alive when Christmas comes this year? Or, believer, that you will experience the glory of Christ and glory forever and forever? Which is more sure? Sure. Is it more sure that you'll make it to December 25th or is it more sure a believer that one day you will reign with Christ in glory forever? Which is more sure? Not even today is promised to us. (laughs) It's not right. I was driving home from an airport after dropping Lisa off at the airport to go see her dying father when the kids and I were hit in the rear. And then that driver took off ahead and, and ran, ran off. We could have died. We're not sure even today is going to be fulfilled in terms of my life. But this I know, that I will be with Christ in glory forever and forever and forever. Why? Not because I'm good enough. Not because you're good enough. Not because I can live an effectual Christian life. But because Christ's death, his atonement was what? Effective and effectual. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the kind attention of these dear people. Lord, I pray that you would give all of us a deeper understanding into these questions. And were I, I was wrong, then may they forget that. And Lord, you lead them into the truth and lead me into the truth because you are worthy and because you are glorious, Lord. We give you praise and we thank you. Amen.